start off with a special thank you to Thomson Reuters. Thomson Reuters is an underwriter of the Aspen Ideas Festival for a third year. It shouldn't be too hard to be engaged in this uh, dialogue because we have a really important topic, what we have called on to implementation, how do we ensure the integrity of the healthcare plan? And we have a terrific panel, including two physicians, as I mentioned, Ray Fabius and Zeke Emanuel. Our moderator is Steve Adler. He will introduce them, but I thought I would give you a minute both first. Sorry. I thought I would give you a minute first on Steve. Steve is Senior Vice President and Editorial Director of Thomson Reuters. He has a two-pronged role there. First is delivering the relevant Reuters content and information to customers across the numerous industries that Thomson Reuters serves, and that includes legal, tax, accounting, healthcare, science, and others. Second, Steve is now responsible for developing original journalism for those audiences as well. And I can't imagine a better person for that task given his history and bio. He was editor of Business Week from 2005 to 2009, winning more than 100 journalism awards while he was there. And he was at the Wall Street Journal for 16 years before that and was part of three different teams that um, uh, won the Pulitzer Prizes while he was at the Wall Street Journal. He is, was previously editor of The American Lawyer and is a lawyer by training, and his book is The Jury, Trial and Error in the American Courtroom, which won the American Bar Association's Silver Gavel Award in 2005. So thanks again to all of you for being here, and over to the good hands of Steve Adler. Great. Thank you, Elizabeth. <laughs> so we have a topic uh, that's obviously uh, of high interest, healthcare reform. Uh, I recall that last year at this time we were debating whether it was going to pass and there were panels on that and uh, to say it was sausage making is probably an insult to sausage makers but it did get passed and here we are uh, able to talk about implementation. Uh, we have two terrific panelists, I'll do very brief introductions then get right in and then we'll have uh, about 15 minutes of Q&A afterwards because we really do want to hear from you as well. Uh, Dr. Ray Fabius is Chief Medical Officer of uh, Thomson Reuters Healthcare and Science Businesses and uh, in that capacity he uh, works to uh, deepen customer relationships, he advises Thomson Reuters on developing new products, uh, on strategy, on medical issues uh, that would face any large company. Um, he's The interesting thing about Ray on this panel is that uh, he's seen this issue from every perspective. He's a pediatrician, uh, but he's also worked in senior positions in the insurance industry, um, in, in the wellness uh, businesses, in academia, and um, also for big corporations. He was uh, a chief medical officer uh, at General Electric. So, uh, so he brings a lot of uh, different uh, approaches to this. And he's written a very interesting white paper called A Path to Eliminating $3.6 Trillion in Wasteful Healthcare Spending. It would certainly be great if we could do that, and I'm sure he'll talk a bit about how that interrelates uh, with healthcare. Um, our other panelist is uh, Zeke Emanuel, um, the uh, prominent uh, bioethicist at NIH and has also been uh, advisor to OMB on uh, healthcare reform. He's clearly a key figure in the healthcare reform legislation that passed on behalf of the Obama administration, um, also especially well known for his uh, nuanced writings on uh, end-of-life medical ethics issues. So let me just jump right in and start with Zeke. And, and ask you, cutting through all of the pages and all, all that's occurred, uh, what, what's the most important thing that this bill does that's really going to make a change, and what are the challenges to implementation on that issue? Uh, well, I would say that there are going to be two big uh, issues. One is uh, setting up what are called exchanges or marketplaces where people buy insurance. 
the way the bill is designed, they're going to be set up in each state, and if a state doesn't do it, uh, there's a fallback in the federal government. And that is incredibly complicated, but also incredibly important to an efficient marketplace in insurance uh, and to drive the price down. Uh, it's complicated because people have to get subsidies, so you have to intersect how much income people are making with how much they get. You also have to have insurance companies provide products and compete. Uh, you have to make a website that's uh, as nice as uh, shopping on uh, Amazon or any of the other uh, great websites uh, out there. Uh, and I can tell you we've had meetings on this. It's incredibly complicated, and we also have a short timeline. Uh, this has to go live sometime around mid-2013. Uh, because the exchange uh, uh, people are going to be buying insurance in uh, the end of 2013. You have to beta test it uh, for about a year, which means that it has to actually be all designed uh, by uh, two years from now, uh, mid-2012. It's really complicated. It involves the IRS, uh, Health and Human Services, the states, uh, the Department of Labor. Uh, it's enormous. Um, and that's a big challenge. Uh, but if we get it right, it will really transform the way you buy insurance. And if you want to see how transformative it is, you can go to the Massachusetts Connector, just type in uh, under your search Massachusetts Connector, and try to buy insurance there. You don't have to go through the full process, but put in a zip code from Massachusetts. It's amazing. It's really so much easier than anything uh, most of us do during open season uh, at our employers. Um, the second big challenge, in my opinion, uh, is uh, payment reform. Uh, and that is going to change how physicians and hospitals and all the other providers uh, help uh, get, deliver medicine. One of the things that has been said over and over in the healthcare debate is, you know, we have too much uh, taking care of uh, uh, sick people and not enough prevention, not enough trying to keep people healthy. And one of the main reasons that's true is we pay when people see the doctor when they're sick. We don't pay the doctor to keep them healthy. And uh, so we need to flip the incentive structure. There are a number of things in the bill that do that, uh, bundled payments, patient-centered medical homes, accountable care organizations. Uh, we're uh, incentivizing hospitals to uh, reduce their readmission rate. Right now, one of the shocking numbers is that 20% uh, of people on Medicare who uh, get discharged from a hospital are back within uh, 30 days. Uh, that's just way too high. Uh, there are hospital-acquired infections. Again, this causes complications. Uh, we're going to try to reduce that to keep people healthy. These combinations, if they work well, will provide physicians and hospitals and, as I say, other providers a huge incentive to keep people well, and that is very important. Um, personally, I'm less worried about everyone in this room. You already, by and large, uh, eat well, you exercise, you don't smoke. Um, and uh, you're staying well. In terms of the healthcare system, most of the money in, of what we spend is focused on a small number of people who have chronic conditions, whether it's heart disease or emphysema or diabetes or, or asthma, and we have to get them to be healthier. That's the key to saving money and improving quality. And these, all of these things, the medical home, the bundle payments, really provide doctors an incentive to get these people to lead healthier lives, to exercise, to make sure that their weight is down, to take their insulin properly, to take their other medications properly. And I think that's going to be the, that's really, if we can get that right, uh, that will really transform medicine. And I do think that by uh, a decade from now, if we come back a decade from now, uh, things will be very, very different. And um, I'm spending some of my energy uh, on this issue of uh, these transformative elements, and I think they really do hold uh, the best promise for really fixing our healthcare system.
Okay. Raise some industry perspective there. Uh, well, yes, I'd really like to build on a couple of things that Zeke said. Uh, one is this concept of payment reform. Uh, one a big idea is the notion of eliminating the disincentive for conservative treatment. Uh, right now, all of the alignment is around doing more uh, rather than watching watchful waiting. In order to have watchful waiting, you need to have good relationships with trusted clinicians, and hopefully we'll get into that a little bit more uh, going forward. Uh, also, uh, as Zeke has uh, presented, uh, the notion that uh, perhaps as much as 15% uh, or as little as 15% of the population may be spending 85% of the dollars, if you focus on managing disease, uh, you, there is a, a, a return on that investment, and I believe that can then be reinvested into wellness in a zero-sum game. And so I have written papers around this notion of uh, what I like to call the Robin Hood effect, uh, where you can actually steal from the poor management of patients with chronic illness and reapply that money upstream to prevent illness going forward by working really hard to keep well people well and also to eliminate risks for people who are on the road to chronic illness but aren't there yet. Um, there, there was an incredible, incredibly powerful article, I'll do a shout-out here, to the, in The Atlantic uh, last uh, September uh, called um, How American Healthcare Killed My Father by David uh, Goodhill. And I, it, was, it had a big impact on a lot of people in thinking about healthcare reform. But one of the points that it made was that all of the healthcare reform proposals that are currently out there and what ultimately passed don't really fundamentally change the way the system works in terms of incentives, and that it does so at the edges, but it doesn't fundamentally get you to a point where the whole system is built around outcomes and built around actually helping people stay healthy rather than compensating you for, for them being sick and then trying to treat them. Uh, Zeke, how, how would you respond to that in terms of, is, is this really happening at scale? Or I think he wrote that before the bill passed. Um, I think... Uh, the first thing is you're not going to change a system that is $2.5 trillion, 16% of the gross domestic product, by flipping a light switch. You're just not going to do that. There's too many complications. And so uh, what you have to do is put in a series of processes that turn, change the incentive structure and change the way uh, physicians practice. And I do believe we have all the components in the bill. Uh, Peter Orzeg and I have written uh, a number of times, name a few things that you think we ought to be doing that aren't in the bill. Everything is in the bill that economists, health policymakers, physicians have suggested we do to reform the system. What now, they may not be exactly as strong as you like. They may be in a slightly different configuration. But there is not an idea that has been put forth out there that we don't have in the bill. The second thing I would say is um, if we get right what I have already said, patient-centered medical homes, accountable care organizations, uh, bundled payments, uh, the hospital changing the way they manage patients, I do think we're going to have a very – we're going to have much more integrated care. I mean – Take the concept of bundle payments. This may be new to you. Instead of paying a doctor uh, uh, per item uh, every time he sees you in the office, every test ordered, every MRI, you pay a bundle. You say, what do the cardiologists say you need to manage a patient, say, with uh, heart failure? Do the guidelines. Do what the professionals say and bill out what that is and put in an extra, in, what if they also have 
uh, a lung disease or they're diabetics, put in a little extra for that, and then a little extra in case things go wrong that are unpredictable, and give that to the doctor. And then let the doctor manage the patient. Suddenly the doctor has an incentive. You know, patient goes into the hospital, that's not so good for my bottom line. And so I'm going to change how I manage. I'm going to have more nurse coordinators, maybe send nurses out to the house. Uh, instead of, you know, seeing the patient once every few weeks, have real-time monitors, which we're beginning to have on the outpatient, of blood pressure, of weight, and other things. Um, maybe we'll have a dietitian. We'll have a coach. Uh, this is not, you know, blue sky. Uh, a colleague of uh, uh, a very prominent physician named Arnie Milstein went to insurance companies and he said, I want the practices, the primary care practices, that have superior quality and are 10 or 15 percent under cost per patient with these complicated illnesses. He calls those super home run pr uh, uh, um, practices. And what happened with all of them is they focused a lot of attention on people with chronic disease. They viewed hospitalization as a defect. They had people who were well-trained in specific areas. They didn't sort of, when they left the hospital, just hand them a whole set of, pres of uh, uh, prescriptions and say, go get the medicine. You come out of the hospital, you're pretty sick. It's pretty hard to get to the pharmacy, get the medicine back, et cetera. They actually delivered them the medicines, and some of the practices coated them with a little sunshine on the ones you're supposed to take in the morning and a moon and stars on the ones you're supposed to I mean, they thought systematically from the patient's perspective. One practice actually in Florida actually sent limos out to pick people up and bring them to the office. And you're thinking, this is, gotta, this is lunatic, right? But if a patient misses an office visit, ends up sick, goes to the emergency room, being hospitalized, costs a lot more money than that limo. Uh, another practice uh, uh, had nurse specialist in only one thing and brought everyone with the same diabetic problem in to that nurse. So you can do this and you prevent hospitalizations, you prevent unnecessary tests and treatment, and you improve quality. And that is the secret. More integrated care, more care upfront, more prevention of complications for patients who are sick. I think that's all in the bill. Mm -hmm. Again, it may not be exactly as you want it, it may be a little constrained, but it's I, I do believe we have almost all components to transform the system, again, uh, within the decade. Uh, to build again on, on Zeke's uh, comments, first I'd, I'd like to tell you a story about my own pediatric practice, uh, which became known as, uh, in, in Arnie's book, uh -huh. as a super home run practice, and, and Arnie and I go back a long <laughs> way, too. Uh, our practice uh, built an electronic medical record in 1983 because there wasn't anything to buy. And one of the great hopes, uh, and you know, we shouldn't uh, right. forget that, that there's a previous bill that may even have a more significant impact on health care, the stimulus package, than actually uh, the health care reform bill uh, because it will incentivize the adoption of electronic medical records. But uh, my practice uh, built an electronic medical record and we, too, thought very much that it was a defect for any of our children to have to be separated from their family and hospitalized. And so we did whatever we could, including having uh, office hours until midnight every night during the week, uh, office hours, eight, uh, 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 eight to 12 hours of office hours on Saturday and eight hours on Sunday, uh, to not only try to eliminate uh, hospitalization, but also emergency room use, which we should get into a little bit more. In any case, when we completed our analysis, uh, we looked for uh, what was really causing most of the hospitalizations, and it wound up being asthma. 
which also was the leading cause of emergency room use. Among the things that we did is we started a Mothers Against Asthma group. Uh, each family put $50 into a kitty, and we paid an honorarium to specialists to come in on Tuesday nights when the mothers of asthmatics would congregate uh, and talk to them about issues related to asthma. And so we had a pulmonologist come, and an allergist come, and a respiratory therapist come, and a psychologist come. Anyway, uh, what uh, happened quite remarkably is our admission rates uh, for asthma started to drop off. Uh, then um, the, the reason for going to the emergency room uh, no longer included asthma. And then lastly, which we also tracked, were the reasons why my parents were calling up and asking us questions, and that disappeared too. And so the woman who was the lead of the Mothers Against Asthma came in one day uh, two years into our program for a well child check uh, with her son, and I said, Andrea, what's going on? And she said, well, now, if any of our kids are having some trouble, we just call each other, okay. and we solve the problem. <laughs> so that's uh, very early social networking. Uh, but the, the opportunity uh, that, uh, I'll say, great medical homes uh, or, or even um, cultivated medical homes can engage in in unique ways to solve the issues of their patient population uh, should be incentivized. And that leads us back to this concept of pay for performance and uh, what would be wonderful around these bundled payments and perhaps a renewal of some versions of capitation is that there's a base payment and then there's an additional payment to providers based on the outcome uh, that they deliver. That's in the bill too. I didn't mention it, but there's a whole series of things on quality and rewarding doctors and hospitals for better quality. Okay, so, so just to press on a couple of the things, <laughs> themes you've raised, the importance of primary care is clearly one of the themes you're raising and what you're calling the medical home, having somebody who's really the general who's, who's managing it, not just putting everything off on specialists. Um, if you're going to provide health care to more people, you're probably going to need more primary care physicians, and there's a lot of concern about there, not, there being a shortage of primary care, care physicians and there not being enough incentive for more people to do it. C could you address that? Zeke first or John or either of you. I'm, I'm, you know, nobody wants it. There, I'm happy to. First do. of all, <laughs> uh, we have, again, included in the bill an increase in payment to primary care doctors of 10% so that they'll be making more money. Uh, second, if, again, they work with the medical homes model and the bundled payment models and the accountable care organizations, uh, they will be able to earn uh, a substantially uh, more mm -hmm. money. Yep. But the last thing I would point out is, and, and that obviously will have a downstream incentive. You don't have to believe every doctor is only interested in money to understand that uh, there are reasons why doctors go into specialists. There's intellectual reasons, there's prestige reasons, but there's also economic reasons. The income differential between a specialist and a primary care doctor over the lifetime of their career is an astounding $3.4 million. Well, you don't have to believe everyone just wants to maximize money to say that has some influence, especially if you're graduating from medical school with $200,000 or $125,000 in debt. Uh, and starting a family. So yeah. I think we have attended to it. Again, you may not think we've done enough, you, et cetera, but it's in the bill and, you know, adjustments are going to be uh, made. The last thing I, w I uh, would say is um, uh, I actually, I, I, I will say this, uh, I do th uh, think that uh, we're going to change how doctors see patients and therefore the idea that we have this huge doctor shortage, I think we don't know. So. I'm an oncologist, uh, and uh, after we completed chemotherapy, how often did I see my patients? 
Any science that says I should see them three months, six months, 12 months, no. And what you will see, again, uh, is if these systems work is doctors changing. You will have more nurse practitioners working with doctors. You will stretch out the visits in the office but do more contacts, whether by email, by telephone, or by new technologies. So uh, the prediction that we're going to need a lot more primary care doctors and there's not going to be enough supply, I think may be a little premature because we haven't redesigned how we're delivering care. We are thinking about the old model, not what's going to happen with the new model. And my belief is with the new model, we'll probably be doing less specialist attention so they can give more primary care, probably less surgical procedures, and we'll have a lot more physician extenders. My, you know, I, I've uh, at, at various points said that I think the future, you know, we spent the last 50 years really since World War II all about high-tech medicine. I think the future is high-touch medicine. The best way to stay healthy is going to be to in be enveloped uh, by doctors, nurse practitioners, dietitians, uh, life coaches, and others into, you know, them helping you live a better lifestyle. And that has less to do with the doctor and more to do with, again, this coordinated care using all the different uh, uh, health care providers. Yeah, two points I'd like to bring up. One is uh, global comparisons. Uh, there's a wonderful professor at Johns Hopkins yeah. who's dedicated her life, uh, Barbara Starfield, to uh, uh, analyzing uh, the importance of primary care and uh, comparing uh, health care delivery systems across the globe. Uh, this country has a remarkable ratio of specialists to primary care doctors, and uh, uh, at least it's her thinking and the thinking of many others, including me, that that, that actually provides a remarkable disservice uh, to us all. Interestingly, uh, many of the specialists, uh, uh, and I'll say including oncologists, uh, are trained initially in internal medicine. And so uh, a, a great number of the specialists that are out there actually have the training and the capacity uh, to provide primary care as well. And so there's uh, uh, opportunities to draw off of some of these specialists, particularly if it becomes financially remunerative, um, and to perhaps um, uh, entice uh, some portion of the specialty layer to do more primary care uh, as well. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the, the opportunity to... Uh, provide more primary care services, as uh, Zeke mentioned, with the use, and I don't like this term, of physician extenders, uh, but of uh, nurse practitioners, of uh, nurses and coaches and case managers. And I want to speak sp specifically in a minute about uh, uh, pharmacists. Uh, it offer, offers us uh, a terrific opportunity to uh, engage other trusted clinicians in this process uh, to build uh, medical homes. And uh, this concept of medical home is an issue I think that's really a big idea. Uh, the, uh, the best um, medical homes have a collaborative team uh, that allow you to feel trusted um, and to, to allow you to have a trusted resource in every occasion when uh, someone in your family or you yourself is uh, faced with a medical issue. And this medical home is actually keeping track of all of your medical records and is working hard to collaborate um, uh, with uh, the specialists that you're accessing. So this collaboration concept and this concept of medical home, when it's been studied, has demonstrated remarkably better results in terms of uh, outcomes and in terms of efficiency. So building medical homes, which is inside this bill, mm -hmm. um, is something that we all should encourage. Now, 
uh, I actually uh, was the president of a company on the American Stock Exchange for a period of time that was the largest provider of workplace health centers in large corporations. I learned that uh, concept and that, that training uh, while being the global medical leader at General Electric, uh, where I managed 230 health centers in 28 countries. Uh, and so uh, this, uh, this company uh, really started to forge a new way of delivering primary care. And, and instead of deli uh, um, delivering primary care in a way that perhaps was most convenient for the providers, uh, we were now delivering care where it might be most convenient for the patient at work. Uh, where, in fact, instead of having to miss a whole day of work to access a doctor, you could uh, actually only uh, utilize a 30-minute uh, hiatus in your schedule uh, to get the health care uh, needs. Uh, that company was sold to Walgreens, and so uh, I actually had a chance to work with Walgreens as a strategic advisor uh, to their health and wellness division as they started to build on this concept of population health, which I hope we can get back to. Uh, but it, they have, for example, 22,000 pharmacists. And there's a wonderful project that uh, now has many disciples called the Asheville Project, uh, which would be a, a worthy um, topic for a future session here at Asheville, I mean at, at, at Aspen. <laughs> and uh, it, the Asheville Project proved that, that pharmacists can be very uh, good, trusted clinicians and can work with chronically ill patients in extraordinary ways to save money, which then could be reapplied into wellness. Um, I want to get a little bit into the politics, uh, which I don't think we can avoid entirely. And you may consider this a contentious political question, although it's not. Um, but, you know, half the country doesn't support the health care bill, and every Republican's uh, running to get it repealed. And put aside the question of whether it will be repealed, but it strikes me that to do this well, to implement it well, you're asking for big cultural and behavior changes from people. You're asking people to, to, to do things differently in their businesses than they've done before and, and in their personal lives and in the way they manage their own health. And if there's so much doubt about whether this is the right way to go, does that become an impediment to implementation? Uh, I'm not the political brother. Uh, but I do think uh, we do have to pr – uh, first of all, I, uh, as I understand it, and again, I don't read the polls, uh, support for the health care reform actually is increasing since it's passed, uh, in part because I think people are beginning to experience uh, some of the benefits uh, of it. You know, people who have kids between 21 and 26 – now can be on their insurance longer. People who had been denied insurance for pre-existing conditions now have a place to go for insurance uh, supplemented by the federal government. Uh, we're getting rid of uh, some of the worst uh, insurance company abuses. So I do think uh, people are beginning to see it. Uh, next year, uh, there will be no charge for preventive visits. Uh, so I think most people are going to begin to have an experience that this is going to be uh, positive. I agree with you that if there's too much resistance, uh, it's going to be hard to implement. Uh, but the, again, the bill uh, has some built-in things. So say a state uh, the governor in a state or the legislature decides they don't want to set up an exchange and they don't want to participate in this. Why should the uninsured people or the small businesses in the state or the people who have to go into the individual market, as it's called, and buy insurance by themselves be penalized? So the bill says, all right, if some state decides it's not going to set up an exchange, the federal government is going to have a fallback option. So you can go to a website and purchase an option in your state. Again, I think we've the bill tried to – I mean, there are – Lots of problems, believe 
me, all of us are, you know, would prefer something here or something there in the bill. But the bill has thought through most of these uh, issues so that even if there's some resistance, mm -hmm. all Americans uh, can get benefits. I do think, uh, uh, again, over time, as people begin to understand the bill, and it is a complicated piece of legislation, it is $2.5 trillion of the economy, and you're not going to change that simply. Uh, doctors are going to become uh, more understanding about it and where it has advantages for them. Patients are going to become more understanding of various aspects. So I think, again, you can't expect in what we've been three and a half months into it now, uh, universal understanding and universal appreciation. But I think the resistance is going to go away the more it becomes a fact of life and the more people see uh, that there are uh, positive possibilities uh, with it. And I think over time that's going to make uh, a big difference. And again, that's one of the advantages of phase-in uh, uh, that you don't have to do everything at once. You can't do everything at once. I mean, I just believe me, we're all working extremely hard in Washington, and you s it, the phasing is really important because there's only so much uh, that can be done, both by people in the administration, but also by doctors, hospitals, uh, pharmacists, and others. Yeah. Ray, you've worked with pretty much every stakeholder group, and I assume you've been a patient at some time in your life. So from all of those perspectives in terms of public support, what, what would be your view on this? Uh, I think that the uh, the uh, cogs of the wheel are already churning pretty quickly, and uh, the main constituencies in the healthcare delivery system are well on their way to understanding the bill and working within the new uh, rules of the game. Uh, I don't think that, uh, for example, the large purchasers, uh, meaning the large employers, are really um, uh, that concerned with public sentiment right now. I mean, they don't, they can't, um, they can't. Uh, deal with that and respond to the important changes that are taking place. So organizations like the National Business uh, Group on Health, which has uh, a uh, coalition of most of the large employers who purchase health care, and the uh, National Business Coalition on Health, which really responds to the mid-market and smaller businesses, uh, are working feverishly to, A, understand the bill and to uh, seek actually uh, uh, more guidance from uh, the government as um, uh, you work diligently to provide uh, the, um, not only, I'll say, the, uh, the, um, the program, but the breeder's guide, right? <laughs> uh, so uh, going uh, down all of the constituencies may be uh, too much for this session, but I just want uh, everyone to think, because the big idea here is that healthcare is made up of major constituencies. So there are patients, there are providers, there are payers, which are the insurance companies. There are purchasers, which is basically the government and the employers and individuals. Um, there's uh, the, I'll say, vendors, which where I include the uh, suppliers and the pharmaceutical organization. Uh, and uh, I usually include the, all the consultants as the sixth constituency. And I think all of them are um, in some form or another uh, working under the assumption that this is the way it is now and uh, how can we actually embrace this in ways that can make things better. And well, I, I would also say one thing. Um, uh, as uh, Ray mentioned, uh, actually the push for electronic health records was in the healthcare, was in the Recovery Act right after uh, the president uh, took office, uh, provided an incentive to doctors and hospitals to go electronic. Um, and a key element of that bill, it says, is uh, we're going to give you that incentive if you have a computer system which can uh, uh, 
uh, do has is meaning uh, meaningful use is the key phrase. It has to have meaningful use. Right. And so part of what we've been doing over the last few months is, well, what does meaningful use mean? If what does the computer system have to do to uh, fulfill meaningful use? We put out a set of uh, tentative guidelines, and a lot of people were upset. To be honest, the doctors came in, the hospitals came in. We listened to them, and we've revised the guidelines, which are going to be issued uh, soon to be cl both clearer, where do we want to be in five years in terms of medical records, what are the steps, we've put off some of the things that they have to do in recognition that it, it might be, we might have been too aggressive, uh, some of us are known for being aggressive. Uh, so uh, that was a joke, folks. Uh, so uh, um, we've tried to work with people, you know, and uh, various people that have uh, issues. That doesn't mean it isn't going to happen, and that doesn't mean it isn't going to be implemented. And uh, I think people are going to understand that and come on board. Great. Yeah, I'll break, break that down a little bit uh, more, I think, for the audience, because this concept of meaningful use is really crucial uh, to establishing the electronic platform in a significant way uh, for healthcare. So it's not enough for, for a doctor to buy an electronic medical record and use it just for billing purposes, for example, which uh, many uh, practices in the earlier days of adoption of uh, information technology have basically used the electronic medical record for. In fact, uh, the guidelines that are being established are going to require, uh, I believe, among other things, that the practice actually improves over time that there's evidence, in fact, that the care that they deliver in 2012 is better than the care that they delivered in 2011. And that would be remarkably significant, meaningful use of electronic medical records. Um, we have limited time, and we're eager to hear your questions. Uh, please use the microphones, and please stand up and say who you are. Uh, there's a question over here. <laughs> Zeke, hi. We discussed this before. And all through the debate, there was discussion. I have to give you the answer again? <laughs> yes, you do. But, but seriously, one thing that Bill didn't address is malpractice reform or CAPS or special courts to deal with malpractice. And the costs, I told you, are enormous in our hospital systems. Well, okay. Why not? L let's, let's go back. I don't agree with every premise. The first thing is the cost of malpractice in the system. Uh, almost all the analyses that have looked at it, the cost is, again, $2.5 trillion. We're talking about between 20 and $50 billion, even with defensive medicine. So they're not enormous given the system. Still, 20 to $50 billion is a serious amount of money. Um, second, uh, if I ask you today, what's the solution to the malpractice problem, at least by the research we have today, no one can tell you the solution. We do not know enough to say if we change our system from this to this other system. Health courts, what's called early apology and uh, resolution. So the hospital or the doctor comes in and says, we made a mistake. Here's what we want to compensate you for. Uh, there's been some promising studies with that in the University of Michigan and a few other places. But no one can tell you it's going to work everywhere. You have early adopters who aren't necessarily characteristic of everyone. Uh, there are other proposed solutions. You have to go through a pre-screening uh, situation. So one of the problems of the bill when we were looking at, you know, let's reform, we couldn't say which one would solve the problem. So one of the things that uh, we have the capacity to do, and the President announced in his September uh, address to the Joint Senate Session of Congress, is 
we've actually just given out a whole series of grants to states and to health plans to experiment with various approaches to malpractice to see if we can get better information about which system uh, will work better and actually solve the problem so that we can build on this. Uh, the last thing I would say is that, by and large, malpractice is a state. It's done, done state by state. We can provide incentives to states, but as you understand in our system of federalism, the federal government has very limited ability to dictate to states what they ought to do. And uh, so that also limited it. But the idea that there's no malpractice here, that we know the solution and we're not implementing it, I think is, is uh, inaccurate. Way in the back. Uh, can I add to that? Um, uh, sure, as the microphone's coming over uh, quickly. So, uh, uh, just, just where uh, if, Ray's going to finish if up. If that's okay, I'd like to, you know, chime in a bit. Uh, the, you know, we talked already about how important the relationship is between patients and trusted clinicians, and perhaps what can't easily be calculated or measured is the um, uh, the, the the existing court, tort system. I think tarnishes uh, the, that relationship because there's always this overhanging concern. Uh, at least on the part of the provider, that you know, despite their best effort, if they do something wrong, um, they're going to be held accountable in a court of law, uh, despite their best efforts and despite perhaps even using the best of medical science and clinical guidelines. Uh, so, uh, the you know, we ought to be uh, considering that. The other point I would like to make is just that the the tort uh, the tort process has been around for a long time, but there isn't any evidence that it's actually improved care. Uh, the intent certainly would be that uh, you would be able to identify uh, clear cases of, of problems or negligence, uh, but when those studies have been done, there's actually a poor correlation between uh, the, 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 the cases that went really awry due to negligence and the ones that actually uh, make their way through the court system. So, that, so uh, tort reform is absolutely, I think, uh, something that uh, should be uh, a big idea here at, at Aspen, and, and we need to look at new ways uh, to deal with this uh, f uh, for uh, the benefit of, uh, of um, medical homes, uh, trusted relationships, and, um, and, and health care. Uh, okay, yes, thank you. Uh, my name is Bob. Uh, uh, question to Zeke. You mentioned that it was 1% or 2% of the health care dollar. Whereas uh, Melissa Mallow, who is somebody that you actually use in, to quote, quotes it much higher. And if you ask physicians, they'll say defensive medicine but might be as, as, wait, as high as 20 or 25 percent. The articles I've read have said that it's at least 10 or 15 percent. That's 10 times what you're saying. And so I, I think there's a real disconnect here between what it really is and what you're saying it is. Look. The absolute maximum any article has come to is 9%. That's, that's, that's that the is the absolute yeah. maximum, and the consensus number is much closer to uh, under 5%. And as we studied this in the writing of uh, uh, an earlier and the white paper that you have, uh, that's our uh, understanding from the literature as well. Uh, so, but it's, it's still a sizable issue, uh, but there are it actually is. other issues that are perhaps – uh, worthy of att attacking first. Okay, more questions? Um, okay, uh, right here in the middle. Just wait for the microphone, please. Thank you. What do you see the increase in the MLR from having insurance exchanges to give more benefit to the uh, patients? And can you link uh, fee-for-service to the Kaiser system or capitation? And what do you see that doing? Uh, <laughs> two questions. Let's take the second question uh, first. Um, 
So one of the, uh, that's a question about fee-for-service and uh, the Kaiser system, which is a uh, managed care organization uh, where you pay and uh, doctors don't get paid uh, per item that they do. They get uh, a salary and uh, work. So uh, on the fee-for-service, the, the problem with the fee-for-service system is it provides a big incentive to do more, whether more is necessary or not necessary. And when you have a judgment call, do I do this or do I do that, uh, having whether you're going to get the fee be a tipping point. Uh, and again, it doesn't have to work consciously. It can work just unconsciously. Um, at the other end of the spectrum is we're just going to give you plop, you know, $10,000 manage the patient. That was done very badly, I might say, in the 1990s, uh, right after the failure of the uh, Clinton health uh, attempt to reform health care. Now I think we have much more sophisticated understanding. First of all, we have guidelines from professional societies. From, so the Best cardiologists say this is how, you know, again, heart failure, or the cancer doctors say this is how breast cancer or colon cancer ought to be managed, and you have each individual test specified, individual things, and you also recognize that not every patient fits the cookie cutter, um, and that uh, there are reasons to deviate, and you can build all that in, and you have quality metrics, so you can measure whether the doctors uh, 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 sticking to these quality uh, guidelines. So I think we've come to some place in between. And I think that's the direction we're going to be moving uh, in the future. Recognizing that if you give just a lump sum, there's a tendency not to spend as much as you should on the quality. If you pay fee-for-service, there's a tendency to overdo things and to try to modulate, be able to say what is, given the best evidence and best science we have today, the right way to manage patients, and Recognize that not every patient is the same, and you need to build in a buffer and not penalize uh, uh, doctors or the patient if things uh, go awry. Um, and, you know, the science of this has uh, gone, um, progressed tremendously. Again, not every field, but most of the big ones uh, with groups like 3M that has actually invested heavily in this, uh, the Prometheus groups, and uh, many others. And I think you'll see, again, over the next five years, uh, uh, big shift. And one of the, again, one of, in my view, one of the big benefits of this shift is a bigger emphasis on prevention. Keeping people healthier is going to pay. And that is going to change how we experience going to the doctor or interacting with the doctor because I'm not sure we're going to be going as much as communicating in other ways and having the doctor be aware of how healthy we are uh, or not healthy uh, uh, electronically and in many other ways. And that, I think, is a very exciting prospect uh, for. Uh, it changing this way that we reimburse? Uh, we uh, mentioned earlier, uh, I think, the answer to the issue. It's really not capitation or salary of providers. It's really not fee-for-service. But ultimately, we need to get to a system that rewards excellent performance. Right now in the system, the surgeon who has more complications and has to go in a second or third time and do the surgery over again actually gets reimbursed additionally. It's the reason why I used to recommend to my friends to beware of the surgeon who drives a Maserati. <laughs> Other questions? Um, right up here? Hi, the microphone's coming to you. There you go. One, one question per person. We don't have that much time, I think. In view of the desire to make it easier for individuals to purchase insurance, why does the bill retain a the situation where the employer-based purchase is tax-deductible and the individual's is not? 
Well, um, uh, my political science uh, training, I, I, I once got a PhD in political science, will say that's path dependence. We did that in the 1950s, and it's very hard to undo because lots of people, 160 million Americans, get their insurance through uh, employer-based uh, system. What we have done instead uh, is, uh, I would say, three things. First, you provide an exchange and a subsidy uh, in the nature of a tax credit to people to buy in the exchange. So if uh, people have uh, earned under 400 percent of the federal poverty line, since most of you don't keep the federal poverty line in your head, it's uh, currently $88,000 for a family of four. So if you if your family earns under 88000 and let me just tell you, that's the majority of Americans. It's not the majority in this room, but it's the majority of Americans. Uh, they will get a tax credit to purchase insurance in the exchange. So that's one answer. A second answer is there is going to be phased in, beginning in 2018, a cap on that tax credit because uh, that tax credit has been, it's thought, one of the reasons that healthcare inflation keeps going up and up and up. If your employer pays or gets you health insurance and it's a bigger package and keeps your wages the same, that extra dollar in health insurance is worth more to you. It's not taxed. It's worth about 30 percent more depending upon your income. And so you might want more benefit in the health care area because your co total compensation is better. Well, that's not a good way of running a system. It overspends in health care and probably underspends in income. And we've seen over the last 30 years almost all the increase in productivity uh, for the American worker has gone to more health care and not to increase in wages. And so in 2018, that's the cap on the super expensive health plans, the so-called Cadillac tax, um, in an attempt to, again, equalize some of this uh, uh, disparity. Okay. Um, go ahead. I'll, I'll try to get back there, too. Okay. Hi. Uh, hi. Um, Andrew Urey from Seattle. Uh, you've talked about, this is about execution. I, mean, I think there are a lot of good ideas, and we're talking about, you know, in the stimulus package for electronic records and meaningful use. But a lot of it's about execution. Correct. And there's huge execution risk here. Uh, and, you know, I think that, unfortunately, lots of really great intentions sometimes don't translate. Correct. And I guess my question is about mitigating that execution risk. And let me give you an example of an area that I'm pretty concerned about. One of the key uh, tools, if you like, in making healthcare su success work is going to be electronic records or electronic data. Uh, but if that key tool doesn't arrive, despite a huge amount of money being spent, you could undermine lots of other things. And so, for example, in the regulations, now it's true, the preliminary ones have been out for a while, and we won't know maybe till next week what's in the final regs. <laughs> maybe you already know, but for those of us who are not part of the government, we don't. You talk about electronic records, but the regulations specifically define electronic record as not having to include progress notes, which means you can have paper-based records and get the money. And that's where execution, in my mind, is a big risk. I don't know why it was put in there. I mean, I do know why. I happen to really disagree with it. But I, I just want to talk about what are your view on how we're going to minimize the risk that we're actually going to get the result that we're putting a lot of money into? Well, I, I, um, I do think uh, it is, there is uh, it's a huge execution problem. Again, you're trying to change $2.5 trillion uh, worth of the economy. I would remind people 
that the alternative, doing nothing, disastrous. There was no option that was worse than doing nothing. Uh, even, and I'm not saying this, that we're going to have this problem, but even if we execute at you know, n less than perfect, uh, is going to be much better than what would have happened alternatively. The alternative, just to put in everyone's fixed mind, uh, is 60 million people uninsured by 2020, uh, health care consuming one out of every three dollars uh, in the total economy uh, by 2040, uh, your premiums probably doubling in under 10 years. So that wasn't a scenario you could go for. So you might be critical of the implementation. What I can say having now worked for three and a half months or whatever on the implementation. First of all, uh, there is tremendous cooperation between all the departments that have to do this. Health and Human Services, Treasury, and Labor being the main departments. Uh, we have a lot of smart people working on it. Um, and we are, I think, aware of uh, some of the problems. Now, you might not like a, 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 a one of the decisions and policies, but there are many other people in other groups who lobbied for something. Will there be compromises as we implement? Of course there are going to be compromises. There's going to be compromise between doing the perfect and best thing and what can be absorbed in the system over time. Having said that, uh, most of these, uh, again, as I said before, you're not going to flip a switch. We have to look at this uh, implementation over the next decade, and over the next decade we are going to do a very good job, and I think also, and you know, only time will tell, we have our eye on the most important aspects, the most fundamental aspects of the reform, as I mentioned at the start, getting the exchange right, getting the payment system to doctors right, getting some of the workforce uh, issues right, getting the quality right. Uh, that is uh, pivotal, and I think our ability to focus on those big items uh, is good. And I have to say, I am, you know, I come from the private sector, I have very high standards on execution and doing things right, and I think the level of cooperation and the level of uh, skill going into this uh, rivals what you would see in any other sphere, private or public. I mean, without getting uh, terribly political, I think the point that you bring up is an example of the intention of trying to improve execution. So it isn't just that uh, the providers get money for implementing an electronic medical record, but they actually get money for implementing an electronic me uh, medical record with meaningful use. So you could argue over what meaningful use is, but you have to uh, be impressed with the notion that uh, the, the government's attempting to improve the potential execution by uh, thinking heavily around uh, what uh, we mean by the important and meaningful use of an electronic How much did record. I pay you for that comment, Ray? <laughs> <laughs> little endorsement for us. I'm afraid uh, we're almost out of time. Uh, perhaps one more question uh, uh, in the back with this lovely straw hat. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, microphone's coming. All right. Thank you so much for some of the best ideas at the, at the festival. Um, there are now 50 million American adults acting as caregivers, family caregivers for other adults who used to be independent. Have you given thought to coordinating the care between the care manager, wherever he or she comes into the picture, and the, the family caregiver, who often now has to give up their job and lose their own health insurance or their own health uh, in order to provide this work at home? 
when home care for chronically ill is the best solution in many cases, and you talked about the team approach, which sounds great. So I'm just wondering how the family caregiver gets looped in. Uh, well, look, that's not something you can, and you wouldn't want uh, Washington to tell you exactly how you're going to manage disabled patient and how to loop in the caregiver. That would not be the right approach. And again, one of the, uh, if you look at these uh, uh, successful medical homes uh, uh, models, almost all of them, the relationship is not just uh, doctor or uh, nurse practitioner or care coordinator patient, it's also with the caregivers and the entire extended network because you're absolutely right. The early warning signals come from caregivers. I, you know, I was an oncologist. Almost no patient ever came in alone. Right. Even if they didn't have family, they came in with friends or someone else who was going to be the caregiver. Mm -hmm. And you had to get everyone onto the same program, uh, whether it's, you know, weighing someone or taking the medicines right or who to call in case something went awry. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, these programs are going to incentivize uh, that kind of uh, relationship. Goes back to execution. Is every doctor going to know how to do it right? Mm -hmm. No. We have to get some of these successful models, those home runs, uh, to more to scale. But you are going to see, I believe, larger integrated delivery organizations that have got it right. Do the computer, computer uh, records. Work with uh, uh, home visit uh, companies. Work with uh, pharmacists. Work with other uh, dietitians and uh, exercise groups to get this correct. Because uh, we're going to be moving away from doctors, you know, in single or two uh, physician offices because you're going to need much more infrastructure to deliver the best care for patients. Essentially, these are the chronically ill patients who uh, use a lot of health care services, and they're the ones we need to get to be healthier. Great. Yeah, your fi final word. Go ahead. Yeah, your, your point. Oh, is, is this the final word? <laughs> um, uh, the... Um, the, the, the topic that you bring up is a very important one, and I, I want to uh, emphasize this point again that there are several constituencies in healthcare of which the, the government involvement is, is one, uh, really more around uh, being a purchaser of services themselves and a regulator, but employers are increasingly recognizing the decrease in productivity that takes place when an employee is burdened by being a caregiver. And we are in a very interesting time now. Uh, I actually uh, decided to, um, to leave my post as global medical leader at GE in part because both, both of my in-laws uh, were diagnosed with cancer at the same time and I needed to spend more time with them because they didn't have a medical home and somebody had to take the time to coordinate their care and especially their end-of-life issues. Uh, and so hopefully with the emergence of medical homes, the burden that's placed on many of us, particularly in the sandwich generation where we're taking care of our parents and our children, uh, can be lessened. And uh, that would be a wonderful service. Uh, but in order for that to happen, all the constituencies have to get involved, including us. Uh, we need to demand uh, something better, but we need to build trusted relationships. During my tenure at Walgreens, uh, we insisted on making sure that the retail nurses who were providing acute care uh, in, in the uh, pharmacies would deliver a report back to the primary care doctors, and we actually established a very interesting kiosk for that. Remarkably, 40% of a, uh, of a largely insured population 
said that they didn't have any medical home to send the reports to. So in fact, we have 40% of our population perhaps that is medically homeless, uh, which uh, starts to suggest that we're really providing in some ways third world medicine. So I thought I'd close actually though with a quote. This is a quote from Jerry Garcia. Well-known philosopher. Right, of our time. Somebody has to do something and it is incredibly pathetic that it has to be us. <laughs> I want to thank Ray Fabius and Zeke Emanuel for a very fascinating conversation, and thank you all for being here. Thank you.